Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone, and uh, good afternoon or uh, good day, whatever the time may be where you're located. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News coming to you through Live Talk, our Pituitary World News radio show that we put on occasionally. Today, I would like to talk to you about uh, medical decision making and uh, what that entails and use a case as an example to give you an idea of uh, the uh, types of decisions that we make and, and how they're based uh, when it comes to trying to solve a medical mystery and to decide how best to help a, a patient who has a condition. Medical decision-making is a term that came out probably, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. We all knew what it was because we did it beforehand, but it, uh, it was something that the Center for Medicaid Services uh, put forth to try to decide uh, how much work we do in caring for patients and how that should be valued uh, or paid for. So it, it's really related to that, but it's existed since the beginning of time or since there were doctor-patient relationships. We focused more on the dynamics and mechanics of it uh, and how patients are involved and other parties are involved, et cetera, uh, really in the past 20 years. Uh, to me, it's a rather complex, uh, difficult design or define rather um, series of decisions that are based on data. Some of it subjective from patients and my subjective views, uh, and some of it objective based on the things that I see and hear and laboratory results, MRI findings, etc. Um, risk is involved. Uh, what what risks does a disease have? What risks do the interventions to determine whether there's a disease in the treatment, for example? In this case, really gets into the heart of that uh, and how we, we really have to go back to what we all learn our first day in medical school, which is first do no harm. So as you're trying to help someone uh, to become well and healthy through making a diagnosis and prescribing treatment, you have to make sure you do no harm. So this patient was a 70-year-old woman, and she gave me permission to discuss her case. I'm not going to give any identifying information, but uh, at any rate, 70-year-old woman, and she was referred for uh, abnormal cortisol levels. I don't entirely remember why they checked her cortisol levels at first, but they found them to be elevated and uh, started to launch an investigation to, to figure out what was going on. By the way, she had no clinical symptoms or signs of hypercortisolism or Cushing's, but she did uh, have some easy bruising that was probably related to uh, anticoagulant because she has a thrombophilic disorder. Thrombophilia is a condition where you have a propensity to develop blood clots, and I believe that hers was a genetic familial thrombophilia. So she was on the, the uh, blood thinners to make sure that she didn't have a blood clot, and of course those can cause easy bruising. But as I recall, there were no other symptoms whatsoever of hypercortisolism or Cushing syndrome. You may have heard that term as well. Uh, at any rate, her physician found the cortisol level to be elevated, so they started on an investigation. And she had an overnight one milligram dexamethasone suppression test that was abnormal. Uh, we expect normal people to go to lower than 1.8 uh, 
greater than five is definitely abnormal. So we've got this gray zone between 1.8 and five, uh, where we focus on those patients as having uh, significant results. Her level was 4.3. So 4.3 is not diagnostic of anything, but because the test is a good screening test, and as a result of that, it's going to pick up people who have uh, not fully suppressed, but the test is wrong about 25% of the time. Uh, and that about 25% of the people who have the test that's abnormal don't really have Cushing's and it was a false positive. So the doctor followed up with additional studies and they, they did a late night salivary cortisol level that was elevated at 0 0.167. Uh, anything over 0.12 is considered suspicious. 0.15 most people would consider to be distinctly abnormal, but there are lots of reasons that can be high too. Uh, altered sleep-wake cycle, depression, stress, etc. Uh, they did a serum cortisol that was normal at 16.3 and ACTH that was high normal at 53.5, suggesting that if she does have Cushing's, it's ACTH driven, uh, either by the pituitary or tumor somewhere else, rather than by the adrenal glands, say for an adrenal tumor or something like that. Curiously, her 24-hour urine cortisol was entirely normal at 21. Normal is between 5 and 45, and she was there in the uh, just below the, the mean, probably, uh, for uh, her age. So that, that looked good. So they then proceeded with an MRI scan of the pituitary gland that was totally normal and showed no evidence whatsoever of a tumor. Um, so at that time, we're left with the fact that she has a normal 24-hour urine, an abnormal dexamethasone suppression test, a high late-night salivary cortisol, uh, and uh, a normal MRI. Uh, and the, the thought is that this might be ACTH-dependent disease, but she's not hypercortisolemic. So that's when she was sent to me. And one of the things that I like to do to see if people have true what we call pathologic cortisol secretion is to do a salivary cortisol profile. So I don't just want to know if it's high when they go to bed, I want to know what it is throughout the daytime uh, because we all have a normal rhythm of cortisol secretion. Some call it a circadian rhythm. Others call it a diurnal rhythm. There's a lot of controversy in the literature of which the two it is. Circadian rhythms sort of set our body's rhythms. Uh, diurnal rhythms respond to the circadian rhythm, but it turns out that cortisol probably is one of the major regulators of the diurnal rhythms in the body. So some like to call it a circadian rhythm and not a diurnal rhythm. But at any rate, uh, I, I get two salivary cortisols in the morning, two in the middle of the afternoon, and then two prior to bedtime. And we did that for this lady. And she had a total loss of the diurnal variation in cortisol secretion. Not only were all of her cortisol levels higher than the 0.15, the highest ones of 0.3 and 0.45, were uh, prior to bedtime. So she had blown through that normal rhythm suggesting this is pathologic cortisol secretion. So that raises the question, is this pituitary disease, ectopic ACTH disease, glucocorticoid resistance, because there is a condition where people tend not to respond to dexamethasone uh, and uh, have failure to suppress. But interestingly, those people don't lose their diurnal variation. Pseudo-Cushing's with depression, they maintain their diurnal variation too. So I'm thinking at this point, maybe she does have a pituitary tumor, but that was missed on the MRI. So my next decision is to do a better MRI called a dynamic contrast enhanced MRI 
to see whether there's a pituitary tumor that was missed on the first MRI. And in fact, this study was entirely normal. We repeated her 24-hour urine cortisol and it was normal at 23. So now we're left with a patient who has abnormal biochemistry, but no clinical manifestations of the disease process and no anatomic manifestations of a disease process that would suggest that it's pituitary disorder. So the question is, is this the syndrome of ectopic ACTH hypersecretion? Uh, and in that setting, we know that patients usually have explosive onset of Cushing's, but about 8 to 15% of them do have a slow onset of Cushing's and look like a pituitary tumor. Uh, those are most common in bronchial carcinoid tumors, but usually these people have very high CTH levels. Some are hyperpigmented, and they do have um, elevated cortisol, 24-hour urine cortisol levels, and it's, it's probably as rare as hen's teeth, as the old saying goes to find one that would have ectopic ACTH with normal 24-hour urine cortisols. <clears throat> so I didn't know what to make of that. The best way to determine whether she, so, so the, the, the decision came, can we figure out whether she has ectopic ACTH secretion? Um, and, and there is an answer to that, even though the 24-hour urine cortisols are normal, you usually like to have the urine cortisol level elevated before you do petrosal sinus sampling. So the question came, should we do petrosal sinus sampling, measure ACTH from the peripheral vein and the pituitary gland? And that would help us understand whether or not this patient has ectopic ACTH secretion. It's not going to help us determine whether she has a pituitary tumor or not, because if she had a normal central to peripheral gradient, one could say that's simply just normal uh, pituitary gland in a setting of a normal cortisol. And this is where having a high cortisol helps you decide whether it's pituitary disease versus normal. But with the cortisol normal, you could potentially discern whether or not she has ectopic ACTH hypersecretion. If the pituitary blood ACTH and the peripheral vein ACTH are equal, that would suggest it's ectopic and lead us on a tumor hunt in that direction. But if it shows a central gradient, we can't conclude that's pituitary disease. So I thought about doing that test, but then I re recalled that the patient had this thrombophilia. And one of the important consequences of petrosal sinus sampling is that you can form blood clots. I have had in my career of over 30 years now, one person die of pulmonary embolism as a consequence of having the procedure. Another two people had blood clots. Another had sudden death that I thought was probably related to pulmonary embolism. A couple of others have had severe hemorrhage into their legs and needed blood transfusion. So the procedure is not without risk. It's not to be taken lightly, and you have to determine the risk-benefit ratio and decide when to do it. And in this patient, my medical decision-making, even though you've seen a, a long chain of that, was that the risk of the procedure is too great at this stage because we have little to gain. Uh, her urine cortisols are not elevated at this time. And I want to wait until her urine cortisol levels become elevated until she has a disease, if you will, as a consequence of this biochemical abnormality before we start subjecting her to invasive tests. Uh, and if her urine cortisol levels do become elevated, I'm going to look at the pituitary gland uh, again anyways, rather than do this petrosal sinus sampling. If that's negative, then I might do what's called a nuclear medicine scan looking for the presence of somatostatin receptors, which can identify ectopic ACTH tumors elsewhere in the body, along with a, a, a whole host of other studies that I would do in that setting. 
but uh, we decided to uh, back off, if you will, uh, and to do uh, periodic urine cortisols. And when they become elevated, we restart the workup because right now we were chasing biochemical abnormalities and we really want to chase a biochemical abnormality associated with clinical manifestations of the disease. Uh, so I feel that this case uh, exemplifies what medical decision making is all about and first doing no harm and uh, going through the whole process of what's the differential diagnosis and what, uh, what's the uh, uh, right pathway to go down to try to understand these mm -hmm. abnormalities. Uh, I still believe this patient has abnormal cortisol secretion, but not to the level yet that deserves treatment. And I think it's important for patients who might be undergoing similar investigations to realize that uh, in all cases, if not most, but maybe most is a better word to use, we should have not only biochemical, but also clinical evidence of a disease state before we subject you to invasive, potentially troublesome diagnostic tests and also treatments. In particular, when it comes to Cushing's, you want someone to prove that you really, truly have the disease process before you subject yourself to pituitary tumor surgery or adrenal surgery or whatever uh, tumor they may be chasing at the time in your particular situation. So I encourage you all to try to get a, get a handle on medical decision-making and understand what physicians are doing when they're working through it. If you see a physician that doesn't really seem to be working through the, the, the process in an effective manner, it may be that they're in above their heads and don't really understand the disease state that you're being tested for. And that's where you certainly would want to think about trying to see a, a specialist for a second opinion to, to get a, a better handle on what's going on and what tests should be done and in what order. Uh, medical decision-making is not something that you see written about in in, um, in books, it's something that most of us probably have a knack for it if we think in this particular way. But I would have to say that probably more than 50% of doctors I don't feel are good at medical decision making because I see the results of their workups and how they proceed with treatment, etc. So uh, you really want to try to focus on this with your physician to see whether or not uh, uh, they are thinking in a proper way. I tried to get to the uh, bottom of medical decision-making and have people write their reflections on how they make decisions, especially when there's not a lot of guidance in the literature about medical decision-making and uh, how to work through certain different disease states. And, uh, and I edited a book where I collated uh, uh, articles or, if you will, case reports by a number of different physicians to help uh, give us an idea of how they think and how they process information. And the book is called The Art of Neuroendocrinology. The subtitle is A Case-Based Approach to Medical Decision-Making. And uh, if any of you have any interest in that book, look it up. I think you can get it probably off of amazon.com. And uh, you should be able to learn more about how doctors think by reviewing that book. Well, that's all I have to say on this topic today. There'll be more later, I'm sure, uh, when other illustrative cases come up. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, episode of uh, Live Talk. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, feel free to uh, write us if you have any questions or concerns, and certainly in the future when we announce the Live Talk uh, in advance, try to join in and ask your questions live, and you can be part of our radio show. Uh, all right, so uh, thanks again. Have a great day.
Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.